name of Antonius. Antonius sat alone in his small second-story apartment located in a slum on the slope of a hill in Rome. And as he sat there alone in the darkness, his thoughts went back to what happened earlier in the day. That morning, his employer, a rough, burly fellow named Brutus, once again turned from the task of pricing fruits and vegetables to ridicule this young Christian. The verbal jabs had become as annoying as flies darting to and fro in the shop's pungent air. Brutus was big, noxious, and cruel. Antonius cringed against the man's emotional blows, wishing he could strike back out of his hurt. But each time he turned the other cheek, it received a slap in kind. Yet he bit his lip, nursed his wooden pride, and again asked the Lord's forgiveness for his thoughts. Persecution of the church in Rome had yet to result in martyrdom. But since the expulsion of Jews under the Emperor Claudius, Christians had continued to be harassed to various degrees by both Jews and pagans. Upon the expulsion, some had suffered imprisonment, beatings and seizure of their properties. That was almost 15 years ago now. Antonius had not been part of the Christian church at that time, but had heard about the conflict. In fact, his own grandfather, ruler of the synagogue, had been one of the most outspoken opponents of the Christians. When at 17, Antonius converted to Christianity, the old man almost died, declaring Antonius dead in a shouting match that ended in tears and a tattered relationship. In recent months, abuse of the church had escalated with the amused approval of the emperor himself. And now emotional fatigue was taking its toll. Footsteps in the hall, a scream in the night, meaningless events that nevertheless set Antonius' heart racing. He had been told the cost of following the Messiah, but somehow his experience was different than he expected. In the beginning, he thought his joy would never be broken, that he would always feel the presence of God. He had been taught that the Lord, the righteous judge, would vindicate his new covenant people. Did not the scriptures speaking of the Messiah say that God had put all things under his feet? But the church had taken a great beating lately, and members of his various house groups had become discouraged and were questioning whether Christ was really in control. In their hearts, they wondered if God had closed his ears against their cries for relief. Some, in their disillusionment, doubted and left the church altogether. Antonius remembered the traditions of the synagogue and the support of the Jewish community, the joy of the festivals and the solemn celebrations of the Jewish calendar. He appreciated the fellowship of the church, but he genuinely missed the traditions of his ancestors, and he missed members of his family. He watched them from a distance as they walked together to market by the river. Some of them still would not speak to him, and passed him on the street as they would a Gentile. And that was difficult. And today, his loneliness closed in around him like a dark, damp blanket. To make matters worse, he was one of the poorer members of the church. When Antonius became a Christian, he lost his job as a tailor's apprentice in a Jewish quarter. He now spent his days <coughs> sorting rotting produce, sweeping the floor, 
swatting flies and receiving orders from obnoxious Roman slaves, shopping for rich mistresses. He stooped so low as to take pieces of rotten fruit home to supplement his meagre food supply. Even rich man's slaves fared better. Earlier in the week, Gaius, a kitchen slave who lived in the area, tossed him a handful of overripe figs, saying, Here you go, Christian. Change your cannibalistic diet by taking a bit of good fruit. The laughter hung in the air with flies. To be poor and a Christian invited double portions of ridicule. Antonius had missed a weekly meal and worship for the past two weeks, and his heart had cooled somewhat toward the little house group. But a spiritual itch in the back of his spirit warned him, cautioning him concerning his loss of perspective. Yet in recent days, he had begun to snuff such thoughts from his mind as quickly as they came. Antonius's bitterness over his current circumstances was growing and slowly obscuring the truth. That night, the believers were supposed to meet for worship and encouragement. There was a rumour that leaders had received a document from back east somewhere. Although he was discouraged and tempted to skip the meeting again, Antonius' curiosity was aroused and he decided to go. Now, Entering the room, he spoke greetings to several friends who also looked tired from the day's work. The hostess offered something to drink and friendly banter but dejection hung like a cloud over the room. When the meal was finished, the group's leader, a good and godly man of almost 70 years, finally arrived. Joseph was a bit out of breath, having come from a meeting with the other leaders halfway across the city. And he was visibly moved as he stood smiling before the group of about 20, his hands shaking slightly from advancing age. After a few words of introduction, Joseph took a deep breath and explained he had talked the other leaders into allowing his group the first reading of the scroll. With a twinkle in his eye, the elder said, I believe you will find this quite relevant. He unrolled the first part of the parchment and began reading. In the past. God spoke through his prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Discouragement, doubt, disillusionment, the temptation to go back to a former, safer way of life. All believers through the ages have experienced this in one way or another. The Christian life is full of trials causes us to question our faith, to cool off on our zeal, to, to back off on our commitment. When such discouragement comes, what we need is encouragement. What we need is to be fortified by the truth. In the book of Hebrews, which we are beginning today and we will study the, the whole of it, was written to give such encouragement, to give us such truth. As you might have worked out, the original hearers was a group of Jewish Christians. Uh, they were most likely living in Rome. And because of the persecution, because of the mocking, the ridicule, they were tempted to go back to Judaism. Because under the Roman Empire, Judaism was a legal religion. 
it had the protection of the empire. And so the Jewish Christians were tempted to go back to the safety, the protection of Judaism. And so they were thinking, I mean, it's not as if we are going to worship idols. It's the same God, isn't it? So it was a very real temptation and struggle. But don't you see, it's, it's the same for us. It's no different. Of course, none of us are tempted to turn to Judaism, I hope. But aren't there times when we are tempted to go back to a former way of life? Aren't there times when we are tempted to, to retreat back to a lifestyle, a way of thinking that is more at peace, more acceptable to the world around us? Aren't there times when we are tempted to back away from a wholehearted commitment to Christ. Oh, of course we know we mustn't do that. You know, stepping away from Christ is, is going the wrong direction. Right? You go too far and there's disastrous consequence. We know we mustn't. But sometimes we, we ask ourselves, but how? How in, in, in this tough time, in this dark time, how do I keep holding on? How do I keep from stepping away from Him? The answer, according to Hebrews, is that we must fill our eyes with a vision of who He is. The answer, according to Hebrews, is we must fill our minds and our hearts of all that He has done. And by God's grace, as we do that, what you will see It's a Christ that is so irresistible, so majestic, so beautiful, so glorious that everything else, your circumstances will pale in significance of who He is and what He offers. And so stepping away will not be an option. Instead, we will want to surrender all and live for Him. Only a vision of who Christ is can do that. So as we begin our study of Hebrews, let's ask God. Fill our eyes with such a vision of the Christ. Let's pray together. Oh God, you know our situations, you know our circumstances. And Father, thank you that you are not silent, but that you have spoken your word to us, you've presented your son. Father, we pray that as we study this book that you have inspired by your Holy Spirit, you will teach us, your Spirit will open our minds to its truth, that we may behold the glory and majesty of who your Son is. We pray this in his name. Amen. You can see in your outline the three points, what God has done, who the Son is, and uh, what this means for us. So firstly, what God has done. What God has done? What God has done is that God has spoken. In the past, the way God spoke was through the prophets. And this happened in many times and various ways. God spoke through the Psalms, through prophecy, through uh, the the narratives. He spoke through a donkey speaking. He spoke through the hand writing something on the wall. He spoke in many ways. He also spoke in many times. Now, the word uh, many times in the original has the idea of, you know, not just many times, but uh, piecemeal, incomplete, fragmentary. 
It's like having an incomplete set of a jigsaw puzzle. And that is what the Old Testament is. It is incomplete, it is fragmentary, it is unfulfilled. It is a book that points ahead expectantly to fulfillment. And in these last days, it has happened. God has now spoken to us by His Son. And the phrase, these last days, it is a phrase that is used again and again in the Old Testament. And it's a phrase that is used in the Old Testament to say the words, when the words of the prophets reach their fulfillment in these last days. You know, so in the Old Testament, they look ahead to these last days when the words, the fragmentary words of the prophets will reach fulfillment and reach a complete picture. And these last days have come. God has now spoken to us His climatic and ultimate word. The picture is complete. And it is focused on the person and work of Jesus. God's final word has come in the Son. There will not be a greater word. There will not be another word in this age. So the question we must ask, which the writer answers, is why is the Son able to do this? Why is He able to be the final word of God to us? So our second point, we ask the question, who the Son is? Who the Son is? In verse 2, we are told that the Son is the one whom God has appointed heir of all things. He is heir of all things. It is, it is His right as Son to inherit all that belongs to the Father. So some of you uh, who are sons, if you were living a thousand years ago, we would get everything, our sisters would get nothing. Okay, but too bad, it's different now. But for Jesus, as the Son, as the only Son, He inherits all. So everything that was created, was created for Him. Every star, every microbe, every person, you, I, we were created for Him. We belong to Him. We come under His ownership and rule. And so, whether we acknowledge it or not, He owns us. So there's no point running away from Him. The next point the writer says about the Son is connected to the previous. All things were made for Him because He is the one who made all things. The Son is the one through whom God made the universe. Now, of course you know there are people in the world who don't believe this. They have an alternative explanation. And the alternative explanation is that it just happened. <laughs> All this, it just happened. Random, you know? Whoa, it just happened. Now, I find that that takes more faith to believe than accepting the plain word of Scripture that it is God, wonderful, creative, who made everything through His Son. It takes more faith to, to believe the, the random theory. I mean, consider the precision and order with which the sun made everything. The, the sun, S-U-N, the sun, has a surface temperature of about 6,000 degrees Celsius. And if the earth was anything closer to the sun, we would burn up. If we were further away, we would freeze. And our planet is tilted at the precise angle of 23.5 degrees, which allows for four seasons. If there wasn't such a tilt, the, the northern and southern parts would be completely frozen over. 
there would only be a small tract of land in the middle, which the temperatures would be you know, hospitable for, for life. But even then, without the four seasons, farming, growing crops would be almost impossible. And if the moon was not at its exact distance from the earth, tidal waves from the ocean would completely flood the land twice a day. You see, there is such order and precision because there is the sun who has made all these things and brought it about. Now when we come to verse 3, we come to the central point that the writer is making in these verses. He says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Now what does it mean that the sun is radiance of God's glory? Well, think about the sun again. Okay, the S-U-N, sun again. The sun, S-U-N, is brilliant. Right? It's brilliant, it's hot, it gives light, it gives heat. And the way we experience the sun is by the, the radiance of its light and heat reaching us. Now, without our experience, without the light and heat reaching us, we would have no knowledge of the sun, S-U-N. Now, it's the same way with God and His Son, S-O-N. Because of the Son, we have knowledge and experience of God. The radiance of the Son reaches, we experience the glory of God through the Son, S-O-N. That's why in John chapter 1, John says, The Word became flesh, made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son has made Him known. See, it is precisely because the Son is, as the writer goes on to say, the exact, exact representation of God's being that Jesus can say to Philip in John chapter 14, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Anyone who has seen Jesus has seen the Father. The Son, because the Son is not just the latest in the, in the lineup of prophets that began with, you know, uh, Adam and, and Noah and Abraham. He is, not the, he is not some majestic angel. He is nothing less than the fullness of God in human form. He is God's final word to us. The writer goes on and tells us that this son is not only the agent of creation. In verse 3 he tells us he also sustains all things by his powerful word. All things he sustains by his powerful word. What? Just, just take a few moments to consider what are the all things Jesus sustains. Imagine the thickness of a sheet of paper represents the distance from the earth to the sun, which is about 150 million kilometers. Okay? Let that be represented by a thickness of a sheet of paper. The distance from us to the next star, the next sun in our galaxy, would be a stack of paper 21 meters high. And the distance from one end of our galaxy, which is called the Milky Way, you know, this is our address in the universe, the Milky Way, 
the distance from one end to the other would be a stack of paper 500 kilometers high. And our galaxy is just one, a speck of dust in a universe that has a hundred million, a hundred thousand million galaxies. All things he upholds with the word of his power, just, just with his word he upholds, he sustains all things. Now is this the sort of person that we simply give a few hours to on a Sunday? Is this the sort of person that we, we simply give the spare change of our own money and time to? Is this the sort of person that we, that we treat as a genie? You know, praying prayers to him, uh, hoping he answers our prayers, hoping that he makes our life go smooth. No. This, this is the, the heir of all things. This is creator, sustainer of all things. To him we must bow down. To him we must say, command me. Let me do your will. And not mine. To him we must pledge allegiance. This, this is a glorious creator, sustainer, king. Now the word sustain has a fuller meaning than simply holding together. The Greek, Greeks had an idea of uh, Atlas, you know, holding the world on his shoulders. You know, he's just holding it up. But the word sustain here has the idea of Jesus moving things, not just holding things together, but moving things towards a goal, towards a specific goal. And the, the goal, the destination that the Son is moving all things towards, is that He is bringing about a cleansed, redeemed, holy people for God. That's why the next point we are told is that the Son after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. See, this is, this is what he's moving all things towards. That's why he provides purification for sins. He's creating a clean people for God. Now, in the Old Testament, the fragmentary uh, picture that they had was that the way God's people got temporary cleansing, you know, TC, temporary cleansing, was by going to the priest in the temple. Okay? And uh, the priest would offer sacrifices and they would be cleansed. But then again, they would get dirty. And so they would be cleansed again through sacrifice. Now think about the furniture that's inside the temple. In the, the Holy of Holies, there's the Ark of the Covenant, uh, where the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone is, is kept. Uh, outside it is the holy place, there is the altar of incense, there is the table uh, for the showbread, there is the lampstand. It was a, a busy place inside the temple. Right? Morning, evening sacrifices, day after day, day after day, year after year. And among all the furniture in the temple, there, there aren't any chairs. There aren't any stools. There's, there's, not, there's no place to sit and, and they would not be appropriate to have chairs because the work of the priest is never done. Because continually they must offer sacrifices. Continually they must perform the rituals. The work of purification was never done. And all this was pointing ahead to the sun. To the sun when he had offered not the body of an animal but his own body as a sacrifice for our sins providing once 
for all, purification for our sins. On the cross, the Son can declare, it is finished. It is finished. The work is done. And because the work is done, because the work is finished, he sits down. He gets to sit down because the work is finished. And where he sits down is at the right hand of the majesty of heaven. It's a way of telling us he's sitting down at the place of greatest honor and authority. This is who the Son is. Now there is uh, verse 4, and that's all about angels, which uh, we'll leave for next week because uh, next week will be all about angels. But let's consider now what this means for us. God has spoken to us in His Son. In a previous generation, the false teaching that the church faced was that of liberalism. And that is uh, churches, scholars, Christians believing that Jesus was an outstanding prophet. He, he was a great teacher, but that was all he was. And he, you know, don't, don't believe all the miraculous stuff. He was, he was simply a great man. And so in, the, in America, you know, only in America, there's this thing called uh, the Jesus Seminar. You know, it's a bit like X Factor. You know, they, there's, a, there's a panel and then there's a button you press, right? The Jesus Seminar, they have uh, more than one button, okay? Three buttons, uh, black, green, red. And so there'll be a panel, and then on the screen, they would flash uh, a portion of the gospel. So, for example, Jesus calming the storm. And then the panel would go, hmm, if they think that truly happened, they would press black. You know? And so if majority press black, okay, that's accepted, that truly happened. If they're not so sure, they press green. You know, We're not really sure, there's a big question mark whether it really happened. If they are completely sure it didn't happen, they press red. You know? Okay, that's it. Uh, this, this, this part of the Bible, uh, we can't believe. It was just made up by the apostles. That was uh, the false teaching facing the church in a previous generation, which still has you know, some currency uh, in some places. But by far, the more common false teaching that the church faces today is the Jesus of the health and wealth gospel. Now, the health and wealth gospel would affirm that he is the Son of God, but he is only the Son of God who is with you. He is only the Son of God who is in control of things when things are going well. When, 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 uh, when, when things are going well with your health, when things are going well with your wealth. You see, neither the Jesus of liberalism, neither the Jesus of the prosperity gospel, in the face of unemployment, in the face of suffering, in the face of persecution, in the face of, of, of disease, of illness, in the face of death, the Jesus of the health and wealth and of liberalism is weak, important, incompetent. But that is not the true Jesus, the true Jesus, the real Jesus, the one who is God's final word to us is, is the heir of all things. He's the creator of all that we see, sustainer of all that we see around us. He is the one who has already made cleansing for your sin. He is the one who is seated at God's right hand in a place of, of highest honour and authority. This is 
the real Jesus. And so if there are any one of you here and you have not come to Jesus in faith and trust and acceptance of who He is, can I urge you, please, see carefully what, what is being said about this Jesus. And you don't have to worry that you're not clean enough. No, no one cleanses themselves and goes to Him. Right? Haven't you read? The only cleansing and purification that is, that is acceptable is what's done by Him and He has done it. So he, come to Him with your sins. Come to Him with your dirtiness and uncleanness. He will accept you because He has already made cleansing. For those of us who have come to Jesus, are you discouraged? Are you facing difficulty in, in school, in, in studies, at home, or at work? Disillusioned? Have you heard God's final word? Whatever your situation is, whatever you are going through, God is not silent. He has spoken. Do you see the glory and majesty of His final word to us? Embrace Him. Don't step back. Surrender to Him. Trust in Him. May God help us to do that. Amen.